good morning to everybody. Thanks. Uh, thanks again for the patience with me here. Let's get set up. This morning, well, happy Resurrection Sunday. Um, you know, what do you say on this Sunday? I mean, it's, um, the message itself is, is enough. Um, you know, to, to say that a man rose from the dead, uh, you know, unfortunately, that's become very common for us in America. We've heard that story uh, for over 2,000 years. But when you stop to think about the significance of it, uh, it's, pretty, it's pretty incredible. In fact, um, it's made me this week start to think about what it, what it takes to be fully persuaded, what it takes to be fully convinced of something. In fact, I might pose it this way in a question. What would it take to fully persuade or convince you that you need something that you currently don't have or currently don't think that you need? What would it take to persuade you, to convince you that you needed that thing that you're not, maybe you're not even aware of that you need? In fact, have you made a, a big purchase lately? I think back to what led you to, to make that big purchase. Uh, I remember a time where um, Karen and I woke up one morning, and we thought it was going to be a, a day like any other day, and by the end of the day, we had bought a car. It's a pretty big purchase. We weren't even planning on it. We saw an ad in the paper. It convinced us, started stirring those motions. You know, Forbes magazine put together a list of 21 pin- principles of persuasion, and this was... The second principle, I'll just read, a, I won't read all 21, it's, I'll read you a couple. Uh, the second one was persuade the persuadable. And see, persuade those who can be persuaded. Um, if you're trying to persuade somebody, number seven says compliment them sincerely. That's a nice dress, that's a nice shoes, that's nice hair, whatever. Uh, number 10, you want to create scarcity. What I've got, what I'm selling or what I'm trying to convince you of is rare, you've you, you need it. You're not going to find it everywhere. So create scarcity. Number 11 was to create urgency. You got to do it right now. It's not going to be here forever. Right? This, this deal's too good to, to pass up. 17 was to communicate clearly. And then 21 was to be confident or certain. Be confident or certain. If you're trying to persuade somebody of something, you need to have some of these things. Now, that's, that's worldly wisdom, but, but at the same time, uh, humankind is humankind for a reason. There's some measurables that you can see on what it takes to persuade people. You know, in our day and age, we hear this refrain of fake news, fake news, leveled from both sides. And, you know, sometimes it's hard to know... What's, what's the actual story? You know, you tend to slant toward one side and tend to believe maybe a certain side more than another. Um, it's really easy to see the fallacies of the other side many times and why it's fake news. But, you know, what would it take to uh, persuade you? You know, sometimes fake, fake news, you can't be convinced of anything. Uh, it, it actually makes you realize you probably don't know exactly what's going on. But, you know, we're going to look at a story this morning in the Bible. And, and just to kind of tell you how the story ends um, and, and, you know, take away the spoiler alert, so to speak. See, God, God has put out his, his trump card, his ace card, if you will, and he's not waiting to the end of time to show it to us. He, he is actually trying to provide all the proof and all the convincing 
that you and I need, that anybody who's ever lived in this world, he's tried to provide enough proof and evidence and convincing. And his ace card is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is how he wants to convince you that in order to get to heaven, you have to have a righteousness equal to his, and the only way you can get it is by trusting in him and what he's done for you. And so God slaps down the ace card to convince you. And we're going to look at a story this morning, and you might think, well, that's only going to work in religious circles. That's only going to work in circles where people are already familiar with Christianity, um, which obviously America would probably work Um, in that scenario. But you know what? We're going to see a man today who communicated this message to a a godless, pagan, secular, polytheistic, religious society, a philosophical society. We're going to see Paul is is going to talk to some men um, in Athens, and he's going to try to convince them of a couple things. He's going to convince them that there's only one God, The men of Athens would disagree with that. In fact, we'll see that from our passage. He's going to try to convince them that this one God is going to one day judge the world in righteousness. That that he has the right to do that because he's the one who created everything. And that he's going to execute justice one day on the basis of righteousness. And that God wants man to trust in his solution for that problem. And he's given us this convincing proof by raising a man from the dead. We know that man to be Jesus Christ. But that's really the message that Paul's going to communicate. And so as we look at this story this morning, I want to give you some background information. Turn with me to Acts chapter 17, if you're not already there in your Bibles. We're going to begin this morning um, in verse 16. So Acts chapter 17 in verse 16. And as you put your finger there, just if you'll listen, I'll try to give us some background information to get us up to speed as to where we're picking up in Acts 17. And in Acts 16, what we see is that Paul was ministering in some different regions um, in and around Galatia, north of Asia Minor, kind of in in some areas um, right there across that that continent. But what happens is, is Paul wants to go north and in, in Acts 16, the, the Holy Spirit says that for, the Spirit forbade him to go north. He wanted to go up and continue his ministry, and the Holy Spirit said no. So he wanted to go south into Asia Minor, and the Holy Spirit said no. And so Paul makes his way to Troas, and while there, he gets a vision from the Lord from a man from Macedonia to cross over and bring the message to him. And so Paul uh, gets this vision in Macedonia, and so when God gives you a vision to go somewhere, you typically go. And, and for many of us, we would think, okay, if God's leading me there, then it's going to be easy. We're going to be on easy street. Like this is just going to go so smooth that everything's going to be oiled and, and well run. And yet we find when he gets to Macedonia, uh, he comes to a city called Philippi. He has an initial success there, but he ends up there with being beaten, jailed, and put in stocks. Not what we would consider success. We would consider that, wow, did I misread the vision? Did I eat too much chili the night before? I mean, was that really a vision from the Lord? I mean, I don't, I don't know where that came from. If I'm getting beaten and jailed and put in stocks. So they get released. They head down the road and they think, okay, it's got to get better here. Well, they're only able to stay in Thessalonica for three weeks because he's run out of town by an angry mob, a violent, 
unbelieving Jewish mob gets together, stirs up the people in the city, runs them out of town. So he moves down the road south about 50 miles to a place called Berea. And while he's having a successful ministry there, the people from Thessalonica travel down 50 miles to also stir up a mob in Berea and to chase him out of town there. And so he just keeps going further and further south. And so from Berea, we see that he comes to Athens. And so that's really the backdrop of the story that we're going to pick up in Acts 17. For those of you that are visual, uh, here's a map version of everything I just said. So Paul was uh, doing some ministry here in the, in the churches of Galatia, revisiting those churches in this area. Couldn't go north, couldn't go south. And so he comes over to Troas and he begins to, he gets his vision there. He heads to Samothrace, over to Neapolis, to Philippi, to Thessalonica. He gets run out of town there. He goes down to Berea. And then finally he comes down to Athens. And that's where we pick up our story. Look with me in verse 16. Now, while Paul Paul waited for them in Athens, uh, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Verse 18, then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him and said, some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new doctrine is of what you speak? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. Verse 21, for all the Athenians and foreigners who were there spent time in nothing, uh, spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear of something new. And so we see that they bring Paul, verse 22 tells us, then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus. The Areopagus um, is, is known by another term, Mars Hill. You might have heard both of them used interchangeably. And it was just a hill in Athens where their judicial council met to, to really hold their trials. Civic criminal trials were all held here. In fact, we know from history that in 399, the, the, the great philosopher Socrates, you've heard that name, he's, he's well known. He was actually tried at the Areopagus and sentenced to death. They poisoned him. Um, and so Socrates was, was tried at this hill. This is a picture of the Areopagus today. You can kind of see why it was called Mars Hill. It was uh, just a hill, an elevated place just outside of the marketplace, again, where they held trials. But another thing they did when trials weren't going on, we find from the text and we also find from history, is it served a pl- as a place where people could exchange ideas. They could communicate their views on things. This might be um, political in nature. This might be philosophy of life in nature, but it was an opportunity to trade and share ideas, debate back and forth. And so this is what they do. They hear Paul. They say, wow, he's a proclaimer of strange gods. Let's hear what he's got to say about this resurrection deal. And so they put him on top of the Areopagus to listen to what he had to say. And Paul goes on to say this. He addresses the men of Athens and he says, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. Now, I'm not saying that Paul is following the human philosophy that we just read about in Forbes magazine, but he does start with a soft statement that would draw them in. Okay, he doesn't say, let me tell you guys something, you're all a bunch of idiots and you're completely wrong. He doesn't start that way. Starts a little bit softer. Now, 
Interestingly enough, when he says that they're very religious, what he's meaning by that is they're very um, prone or very um, religiously disposed. And, and what we're going to see as Paul works through that he did not mean this as a compliment, but it was a soft way to enter the conversation. And, and the way that he said they were religiously disposed is history is going to tell us and our passage is going to tell us that the people of Athens were incredibly overboard religious. In fact, uh, one person joked that in Athens, it was easier to find a God than a man. That's how many gods they worshiped there. Um, many cultures uh, in our day are religious as well. And, and, and this was a culture that believed in, in the gods that you had to maybe pacify certain gods at birth. So when you gave birth to a baby, you might have to, to bring food or or different sacrifices to the altar of this God to pacify that God. And then they believed that you had to pacify this God at death uh, or gods at death. And then you, they believed that you had to pacify gods when you planted crops. You had to pacify gods when you harvested crops. You had to pacify certain gods when you got sick. You had to pacify certain gods when you were well. And so their whole life was religiously disposed. We see that a lot of times in, in jungles and in, in tribal religions today when a when a storm's coming in and the wind's blowing, they say, oh man, the God of the sky or the God of the wind is upset with us. We, we've withhold some of our, our goods and crops. And so let's sacrifice this to the God of the wind to stave off the storm. And, and so many people still think this way today. And so they were very religiously disposed. You know that although we don't have a lot of idols uh, per se, um, physical idols in our day. Do you know that there's over, uh, just based on latest statistics, there's over 300 religions or denominations in America alone? And I'm talking about some are completely different religions. Some are denominations of the same religion, but over 300, over 300. You know, if you didn't grow up in the family that you did with the emphasis that you got and that were taught, or you didn't, you weren't exposed to Christianity when you were, imagine just stepping out the door of your house one day and saying, I'm in America, I'm going to find the truth, where do I start? That'd be overwhelming. And, and you know, our culture, the same thing that Paul said to the men of Athens, you are very religious. In fact, I had somebody even this past week said, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. What does that mean? I asked him. He couldn't explain it. <laughs> I, but that is a common thought. We are religious as a culture. We're religiously disposed. But that's not necessarily a compliment. See, because religion, according to the Bible, can be very distracting from the actual truth. Because religion wants you to focus on what you must do or continue to do to appease the God. That's all religion has ever taught through the history of man. Even uh, people in less civilized, barbaric cultures still have that mindset. What must I do to please or appease this God and his judgment? Where Christianity teaches something much different. God has done something for you to appease himself. You simply have to trust in it. You simply have to believe him. You simply have to take him at his word. You see, that's putting things on its head. That's opposite from what everyone else teaches. And so Paul is going to kind of work through this whole concept. Verse 23, he's going to say, uh, and again, he's still working on this, this cultural pivot to the truth. 
And notice how he does it. Verse 23, for as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. You see, they were so religious that they even built an altar to a God that they might have forgotten. And they offered to that God. And, and, and we laugh. I mean, that's, that's incredible. That's incredibly religious. That's incredibly fearful for them to do that. In fact, we know from, from history um, that there was a, a plague that once swept through Athens. And so they began to try to pacify all the gods that they thought were responsible and the plague didn't go away. And so they erected this altar to the unknown God to try to stop this plague from spreading. In fact, by the time Paul was going there, history tells us that they probably had more than one of these altars to the unknown God. To the unknown God, A. To the unknown God, B. To the unknown God, C. They had multiple altars to the unknown God just in case they forgot one and didn't want to upset or offend them. And we see from this that they had no problem with what we call syncretism. Syncretism is just a a combining of multiple belief systems, um, just merging of multiple belief systems. You know, years ago in the uh, many, many uh, Jesuit uh, missionaries went to South America to, to establish churches among um, some of the Indian groups there. And what they found is that they would come home with great stories of conversions and how they had erected these churches and how these Indians had rejected their paganism and begun uh, to come to what was considered the, the true way of thinking. And what they found years later is as these churches were starting to to, 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 to deteriorate. It was just old. Um, they began to take down walls, to replace walls, and they found many of the Indians' idols behind the walls. So as, even as they built these churches, they were still putting their idols and their gods in to keep watch over them. See, it wasn't that they had accepted what they had been taught and rejected what they had believed. They just accepted it as an additional thing to believe. They just syncretize things. And, you know, we do this in our day. You know, it's, we hear, uh, sometimes I'll hear Christians talk about karma. Oh, that's karma. And I know some people are joking, but some people aren't. They actually believe that if you looked in the Bible and did a word search, you could find karma taught in the Bible. That's syncretistic. syncretistic. I mean, that's a, that's a combining of religions there. You know, some, some people will go with the Bible on some things, and then they'll go with the culture on other things. You ever known somebody like that? Oh, I hold to the Bible. Well, the Bible says this. Well, I don't agree with it there. I, I think God is much different than what it says that he is. And so I'm going to hold this. And we do that on such issues that are, that are going around in our day, cultural issues, homosexuality, gay marriage. How do we, how do we feel about that? How do, we, how do we come to the Bible and adjust our thinking to what the Bible says versus what the culture says? Because the culture... In these areas of homosexuality, name some more, abortion, extramarital, extramarital affairs, premarital uh, uh, relations, divorce, all of these things, the culture has a loud, obnoxious, persistent, aggressive voice in all these matters. And yet many Christians will take and pick what the culture says, take and pick what they like in the Bible, and all, 
we've done and all that people do that do that are syncretizing our Christianity. Just, just melding, taking what we want from here to, to here, like, like we're in a made-to-order restaurant. Like, this guy can order a burger with lettuce, tomatoes, and onions, and I can just get it with onions and ketchup. And, and that's how we approach our religion. That's how we approach the Bible, as if the Bible is a, is a take from here, reject that, but take this, reject that. And, and, you know, this is what was going on in Athens. And, and one of the things that was happening in Athens, and this is the case in any pluralistic society, I, I think that we live in a society similar to what Paul was facing in Athens because all you have to do is watch a nightly news network show and when they have a religious person on and try to put that person on the spot as to what they believe and then labeling them as intolerant, bigot, et cetera, et cetera. See, pluralistic societies, if you want to add to what's already there, that's acceptable. You want to add another God? Yeah, come on, Paul. Come on up to the Aeropagus and tell us about your extra God. We want to hear about this because maybe your God is one of these guys that we're worshiping without knowledge. So, so come on up. We'll just, you could just add a God. See, what they didn't know Paul was going to do was going to get up and say, no, no, there's one God. See, Christianity by nature is exclusive. It, I, I've seen a bumper sticker, and you have too. It's, it's the word coexist, right? And it's got lots of different religious symbols, and let's all get along. The problem with that is without sounding too bigoted or intolerant, but just repeating the scriptures, Jesus says, I'm the only way. How do you, how do you coexist that with everything else? I, like, you just have to turn off your brain to think, no, no, Jesus made an exclusive statement. But he's the one that made it, not me, not you. The Bible makes that exclusive statement. So let's not pretend, let's not get swept up into the culture. This is what was going on in Athens, this, this kind of syncretism. And then we see that Paul, again, kind, kind of kindly softens this blow, but he's like, you guys are ignorant. You, you guys are worshiping that which you don't know. In fact, the, the word worship is in a present tense verb in the Greek. It means they were presently continuing worshiping a God that they didn't even know. In fact, we know from Jesus's word in Matthew 7 that many people are going to do that very thing in Christianity. Read with me. You're familiar with the passage. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, tell me if this doesn't sound like Christian service and worship to you. Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? You ever heard somebody just do something and then just say in Jesus' name? Like, just stamp that on the back of it as, as they did it in Jesus' name. Have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? And Jesus responds and says, no, you didn't. No, he doesn't say that. <laughs> he assumes that that's true, that these things happened, that they were actually doing these things, worshiping in this way, actually accomplishing these good works, wasn't about whether or not they did it or didn't. Notice what the issue is, the next phrase, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You mean all these good deeds are really lawlessness? All these good deeds are really evil deeds? You mean all these righteous acts are really filthy rags? That's what Isaiah 64, 6 says. Yes, that's exactly right, because good works don't get you to heaven. 
Good works can't get you the righteousness needed to get to heaven. This is why when Jesus is exclusive, he's exclusive for a reason. There is no other bridge. There is no other way. He's not just trying to say, come on my bridge because it's better and more shiny and better than everybody else's. No, he's, he literally means there's no other way. Like, this is the only bridge out of town. This is the only exit strategy that exists. And that's why he can be exclusive. But notice, even at the end, people are going to say, oh, what, well, I've been in, they might, you might, we might reward that and say, well, I've been in church every Sunday. Well, I've been doing this. I've been giving to this ministry. I've been doing this. And, it, and the issue is not what have you done, is who do you know? Who do you know? And in this case, the Athenians were worshiping somebody that they didn't know. You know, what's interesting about religion is religion will teach worship in order to get to know a particular God. Christianity says you've got to know him before worship has any relevance. You've got to know him before good works have any relevance. And that's what we've been looking at in our series previously. Now, I want you to know, notice something here. And, and one of the, the clues is in verse 23. He uses this word, therefore. And Paul is going to now springboard into his message. He's going to make what we call a pivot, okay? He's kind of introduced, he's kind of said, hey, you guys are religiously disposed. See this altar right here, it's to the unknown God. Let me tell you about him. And he's gonna pivot into his message. And the first thing that he's gonna start with is who is God? He's gonna pivot into who is God. And so in verse 24, we read this. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temple uh, temples made with hands. See, he's going to say that the God of the Bible is the one who made the world and everything we can see. What, did the, what do pluralistic people think? Well, they think there's a God of the wind. They think there's a God of the sea. They think there's a God of the grass. They think there's a God of the grasshopper. They think there's a God of this, a God of that, a God of this. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. There's one God. He made everything. He, he's in charge of everything. In fact, when Jonah is on board, Jonah, you know, the biblical Jonah is on board the ship and they begin to ask him questions. And he says, I serve the God who made the land and the sea. And these, and it's like the sailors are like, oh, great, man. <laughs> why didn't you tell us that before we went out of the ocean? You know, why didn't you tell us that before this, this storm is gonna take our life? Because their mindset was still, well, there's a God of this, there's a God of this, there's a God of this. And when Jonah says, my God's the God of everything, he made the sea. They're like, oh, great. And now we're on the sea and you upset him. You know, and so this is how pluralistic people think. So Paul just uh, immediately begins in, and you know how we can know that there's a creator. It's it sounds so simple, you know, in this day and age of evolution, and there's just so much again pressure and the so-called science of evolution, which which really, when you boil it down, there's there's not a lot of science. There's not you know science requires a scientific method, repeatable, observable. How do you observe something that happened 10 billion years ago? So it's not science. It's a belief system. It's, it's a belief system, just like Christianity. But we've got better proof that there's a creator. Just look at creation. Creation testifies that there's a creator. Just like this building, I could not convince you in a million years that this building just happened by chance over 10 billion years. We showed up on Roscoe Road, and there it was. You'd say you're an idiot. And I would say, yeah, you're right. You're, you're an idiot. No, this building is proof that somebody built it. There was a builder, right? 
That's, that's the proof. And so as we look at creation, uh, again, if I found a watch in the middle of the forest, I wouldn't say, wow, look at this watch. Isn't it incredible how this has evolved for over 10 billion years? Like all these minutia parts that came together and man, it, it had the, 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 the time dial down. No, I'd say someone dropped their watch, right? And someone created the watch, a watchmaker, had to have. And so when we talk about the God of the Bible, the, the proof is simply the creation. And he's saying, look, the God of the Bible is the one who created all these things. He made the world. He made everything in it. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. And then he goes on to say he doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. In other words, he's not so small that he needs a house made by human people. Uh, otherwise, we, we serve a homeless God. You know, he's out on the street, <laughs> So we better get him a house. We better, better get him out of the rain. You know, he might get rained on. No, that's not the God of the Bible. He's not so small that it takes a temple made with human hands. In fact, we see that most religious people are very ge- geographically limited in where they worship, as if something is holy about a certain building. Something is holy about a certain city. Something is holy about a certain process. Something is holy about the way you do this and the way you do this and the order that you do it in. And, oh, don't, don't mess it up because you're going to upset the, the deity who might zap you. And many people view religion that way, and it's very geographically motivated. It's very process-oriented. It's very this, then this, then this, and this. And it's just, it's all crammed into a small building made with hands. And he's saying, no, my God's much bigger than that. The God that you don't know is much bigger than that, this God that we read about in the Bible. He goes on to say in verse 25, nor is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. See, we see the God of the Bible needs nothing from anyone else to survive. What was the typical offering in polytheistic cultures? Well, they were bringing food. They were bringing water or, or wine. And in some cases, they were slaughtering animals and, and slapping a carcass down. They were doing all, all sorts of things to uh, uh, appease or to provide for this God, to, to something that this God needed. And he's saying, hey, my God doesn't need anything for man. In fact, you got it all backwards. When you think that you're giving something to God, you've got it all backwards because it's God who gives everything to us. See, we're, we're simply the receivers. God's the giver. And so many times religion turns that on its head and says, no, you got to give to God. You've got to sacrifice for God. You've got to do this. You've got to do that in order to appease or please God. And it's just the opposite. God needs nothing from us to survive. That's what this verse says. And on the contrary, it's, it's this God who provides everything, all things, breath and, and life in addition. Verse 26, he goes on to say that he is made from one blood, every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. And so what does this mean? Well, what I think Paul is shooting down here is the exact response that he anticipated, which we might get in our day. Well, that's, that's your belief, but I've got mine. Well, that's your God, but over here in this area of the world, this is our God. 
And, and you remember, God's in plur- plurality and polytheism was very geographically centered. So it was the God of the Athenians. It was the God of the Egyptians. It was the God of this group and this group and this tribal group. And then they just added gods to their pantheon of gods. And so what he's trying to say here is, no, no. This God of the Bible has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell. That means you don't get your private God. You don't get your local God. You can't just write what I'm telling you all, Paul is saying, by saying, well, that's your God. We got our own God. Have a nice day. Now, that was an interesting story, but we got our God. We got our beliefs. You've got yours. No, Paul is, is bringing this to a head. He's going to bring this to a head because he's looking for response here. The God of the Bible, we know, created Adam, and then from Adam, every people group on earth originates. Again, this eliminates the thought that everyone has their own God. We also see that the God of the Bible has marked out or appointed men's lives. And what does he mean by that? Well, where and when they, they will live. You are living in the exact place that God has designed you to live in the exact time in history that you were born, to the exact parents that you had, to the exact continent that you were born on, et cetera, et cetera, the hospital, go on down to the the minutia. And he did this for the reason. And not, not only that, but God is the one who establishes boundaries of nations, not not the UN not any governmental agency. God is the one who establishes boundaries. God has enforced and put in place boundaries. He's, he's put in place nationalism, not internationalism, where we're all together under one ruler. No, there's distinct uh, privileges. There's distinct reasons God has set up boundaries that form nations. God has done it. He's done that for a reason. The question is, why did he do that? Well, we're going to see in verse 27 why he did that. In fact, he's going to give us the reason behind the method. And I, and I hope it makes sense when we read it, because in verse 27, we start with two words, so that. See, that explains the reasons why God did what he did in verse 26. Why did he make every nation of men from one blood? Why did he determine their pre-appointed times and boundaries. Why were you born in the century that you were born in, into the years that you were born in, into the family you were born in, et cetera? Why, why, why? We'll look at verse 27. So that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. See, God ordained and did all of this so that you and I, And everyone in human history would seek the Lord and find him. See, this was what God is up to behind the scenes. This is why he's determined when you would live, where you would live, in what what state you would live, in what parents you would have. He is trying, he knows the best way to get this message to you, to convince you of what you need to go to heaven. God is not trying to hide anything from anybody. He's not trying to be far away and hard to find. In fact, we see that last phrase of this verse, he's not far from each one of us. He's not unreachable, he's knowable. He, he's not hard to find, and yet when you ask the typical religious person, do you know God? They would say, no, no, I don't. Can you tell me about him? Can, all I know is what my religion says, but I don't know him. I don't, I don't know anything about him. And yet God doesn't want to be unreachable. God doesn't want to be far away. God doesn't want to be not found. He has put, he's put you in a perfect 
position each one in this room and each one in the world to actually know him, to seek after him, to desire to know what the truth is. And so Paul, again, is communicating this to the men of Athens. And so he goes on in verse 28 and he looks for a response. Now, in light of who he is, in light of what he shared, he's going to encourage a response. Okay, so he's going to encourage a response. And then when we get to verse uh, 30, he's going to command a response. So there's an initial encouragement in verse 28 and 29, and then he's going to command it. What's the encouragement? Well, let's read verses 28 through 29. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, here's the exhortation. Here's the encouraged response. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think. In other words, we need to change our mind about some things. We need to quit thinking a certain way. We need to adjust our thinking. And what should we not think? Well, look at the next phrase. We ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Man is not to think that God is like material things, nor is man to think or to devise their own image of of God. Um, This is a problem in our society. We don't, there's not a lot of people, I haven't met anybody that's made a gold idol and said, hey, come in the living room and worship my God. This just doesn't typically happen in the United States anymore. I don't know of any, many, I've never met anybody. And I, so I think it's a little bit more rare than this time. That was obviously very prevalent during that time. But you know where, you know where our culture falls short? Is, is we shape the divine nature. We, we shape God into our own image. And you'll hear it often by saying, well, my God is a loving God. He would never send somebody to hell. That might be one phrase that we hear. Well, my God's like this and my God's like this. Well, if your definition of my God is like this is not found in the scriptures, you're devising a God in your own image. You're doing the exact same thing that the Athenians were doing when they were shaping their gods out of gold. And imagine... Imagine the ridiculousness. In fact, Jeremiah talks about this, where you were to, if you were to go out and build your own idol, you would have to cut down the tree. You would have to hewn the wood. You would have to carve your idol in place. You would have to place your idol in a spot where it wouldn't fall down, and then you would have to figure out ways to prop it up. And now I'm going to worship that thing to help me? The ridiculousness of idol worship. Now, we never get our hands on things like that here, but we do the same thing. We shape God in our own image. And so that's the encouraged response. When you think about the God of the Bible, you don't get to determine what he's like. He is who he is. Just like if you knew me and say, well, yeah, my John Clark, he's 5'5". Five five. I'm okay. I mean, you, you could say that, but I'm 6'4". I'm you don't get to say what I am. Well, well, my John Clark, you know, has a, has a broken left foot or a torn left. I would like you if you said that because then I could drive, right? But, you, but we don't get to, I, I am who I am, right? You can't, you can't say, well, my John Clark's like this, my John Clark's like that. And, and so many people do that with God. They devise God, they shape him according to their own image instead of saying, no, no, the Bible gets to tell me who God is and I need to adjust my thinking to that. See, that's what Paul's after here. 
You can't shape this God. You can't create and take this unknown God and shape him according uh, to your own image. And so he encourages this, you need to change your mind. You need to stop thinking this way. And now he comes with the commanded response. And I would say it's an emergency response. And I'll tell you why, because he gets very urgent here in verse 30, because he says this, truly, these times of ignorance, God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. See, in times past, God was, was patient with this. In other words, he didn't step right in and destroy cultures, uh, take out people that believe this way. He was patient through their ignorance. He sought to communicate truth through his nation, Israel, and the, and the prophets. And we, we have that recorded in the Old Testament. But in the clear revelation of his son, Jesus Christ, he, he no longer is patient. He commands an urgency here. In fact, when we look at the word now, it's interesting in the Greek, when we look at the word now in verse 30, there's, there's an articulated word in front of it, the, the now, which that's why it's not in your translation because that wouldn't make any sense. He wouldn't say, um, truly these times of ignorance got overlooked, but the now, command, it was just weird. But what you can do in Greek is you can, you can emphasize something. You can bring emphaticness to it. And he does that here with the word now. Now, why is this important? Why does he command everyone everywhere to repent? And repent just simply means change their mind, right? We're just talking about changing our thinking. Now he uses the word. Why should they change their mind about him and their approach to him? Well, one, Paul's talking to a group of polytheists who are shaping God in their own image, worshiping him ignorantly, they need to change their mind. They need to realize that the God of the Bible is who Paul says he is. And not only that, as we're going to see from verse 31, he uses the word because, which is going to tell us why this is so urgent. Verse 31 answers the question, why? Why does God command all men everywhere to repent? Why is this so urgent? Verse 31, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. God's righteous standard by which he's going to judge the world is none other than Jesus Christ. You know, it doesn't take much to go around in our world and convince people that Jesus was a good man that he was a righteous, many people would say he's a righteous man. Many people will even agree with you and say he was perfect. He never did anything wrong. That's what the Bible teaches. Jesus, it teaches that Jesus never sinned. And so there's going to be a day that God's appointed that he's going to judge everyone based on the righteous standard of Jesus Christ, not based on the righteous standard of your neighbor. Let's put it this way. Your neighbor, your social circle, your friends don't hold a candle to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So don't go around and say, well, I'm better than my neighbor. That's the wrong standard. Again, I've used the illustration. You wouldn't be in an intensive care unit in a hospital and say, well, I'm healthy because I'm better than the guy in the next room. No, dude, you're in intensive care. <laughs> that, by definition, means you're not healthy. That, that you got a problem. And so when we talk about this righteous standard, what that means is this, is that e each person in this room, and each person in the world has to have a righteousness equal to Jesus's righteousness to escape judgment. You see why this is so urgent? We, people
people have got to get their thinking in place and start to adjust their thinking. See, the Athenians thought, well, if I just give more fruit to this idol, to this God, then I'm going to appease them. I'm going to be okay. And Paul's saying, no, no, no. No amount of giving, no amount of sacrifice, no amount of religion, none of that can give you what you need, which is righteousness equal to Jesus's righteousness. And that's what he's talking about here. And how does he prove it to them? How does Paul say, this is not just some fanciful tale that I dreamed about, that I'm making up. I'm not, I don't carry a cart of books behind me that I'm going to sell to get rich. You have to buy my book and I'm just trying to convince you. No, he's saying God's given the proof. God's given the assurance. And what is this assurance? What is his ace card? How is he trying to convince you and persuade you to trust in the one who died for you? Because God raised him from the dead. And you know, it's interesting in the Gospels because Jesus made this point a a number of times. The Pharisees asked Jesus for a sign. And you remember what Jesus said to them? You will not get any sign except for the prophet Jonah who was buried in the earth three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be. What was he referring to? He was referring to his death, his burial, and his resurrection. That was the sign they needed. You remember the rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man was was in torment, and Lazarus was in paradise, and he just begged Father Abraham, just send him over and drop a, a, a drop of water in my tongue so I can get a little bit of relief. Anybody ever mowed a lawn in, in Georgia? Imagine, imagine being so hot that you, that you thought one drop of water would provide you with relief. That puts it into perspective, the amount of torture that this man was in. Don't give me a drop, man. Give me a 32 ounce, man, and just, let me just pound it. You know, I just, uh, and then go fill it up and give me another one, right? No, no, one drop could satisfy this guy. And you remember what Abraham said? They have Moses and the prophets. And if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they won't even believe if we raise somebody from the dead to go tell them. This is what God has for us, guys. You know, there's some new faces in the building today, and and you all may be saved. You, You may have already put your faith in Jesus Christ, and we rejoice if you've made that decision. There are people here that I I recognize faces, and and just because I recognize you doesn't necessarily mean that you have put your faith in Jesus Christ. So we're in a building where this is is an individual response is is needed. And I want to ask you, does God need to do anything else to persuade you? Are you persuaded by God's ace card, which is he rose Jesus from the dead? If you're looking for more proof than that or more persuasion than that, um, there's none to give you. I'm sorry. I mean, we can spend more time looking at the Bible. We can spend more time answering other questions. But this is where it's at. This is where Christianity rises and falls, is on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If that's not convincing to you, then I don't know what would be. And so we just, we hang our hat on that truth. And you know what's disappointing is what we see as the response. Look at verses 32 through 34. We really see three responses, um, yes, no, and maybe. Those are kind of your three responses here. Look at verse 32. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. They basically said no. 
while others said, we will hear you again on this matter, you know, not now, maybe later. I, I, got, I still got some life to live. I don't want to do that Christianity thing yet. I think I'll wait on that. Um, I, maybe, maybe, I don't know. I just, maybe, maybe. And, they, and people just put it off, put it off, put it off. Skip down to verse 34. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them, among them Dionysius and the Arapagite, a woman named Damaris and others with them. And you know, if we're being honest with you this morning, there's only two answers this morning. Maybe doesn't exist, actually. It, if, if you hear this message and you say maybe, you're rejecting it this morning. And you know, I'm not a doomsday guy by any stretch of the imagination, I'm a, but I am a realist. Um, nobody's guaranteed life the moment we leave this door. Nobody's, nobody's guaranteed another 30 years. No one's guaranteed another 30 seconds. So at this moment, if you hear the message that Jesus died for your sins, paid the penalty for you so that you don't have to pay for it, and God wants you to have assurance that what he did was good enough in his sight for you, that you can actually obtain the righteousness of Jesus Christ the moment you put your faith in him. God has sought to convince you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's risen him from the dead to say, see, this is my stamp of approval on what he's done. Will you trust in him? There's only two answers as you leave this morning. Some of you said, yes, I've, I've already trusted in him. I already know him as, as my savior. Maybe there's someone here this morning that this message made sense for the first time. You say, you know what? I am going to put my faith in Jesus because if God's convinced in what he accomplished, then I'm convinced. That's all I need to know. God's convinced. I'm convinced. I'm going to trust in Jesus. Maybe you trusted in Jesus during the message this morning. Maybe you saw that, yeah, he's the one. He's, he's the man, as they might say. He's the one. And you put your faith in him. Some may still be saying maybe or no. And I would just encourage you today, this is an urgent decision that you don't want to put off. You don't want to put off for another minute. If you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, I would encourage you this morning, look no other place to satisfy God. Look no other place to try to obtain righteousness needed to get to heaven. Simply look to the cross where Jesus cried out with his last words, it is finished. Do you say amen to that? Or do you say, well, I'll think about that later. Now, Jesus said it's done. Will you trust in what he did for you? Let's close with a word of prayer. Lord, I do thank you uh, for Jesus. I thank you for what he accomplished on the cross. And, and Lord, as we see the, the suffering he went through, we're, we're impressed by that, Lord. We're uh, overwhelmed by the sacrifice he made uh, undeservedly. We don't deserve to have him die in our place. We deserve to pay that penalty ourselves. And and yet, Lord, as we, we look at the resurrection, that, that morning, uh, that, that early morning when the stone was rolled away, what we see there is something that causes great rejoicing, and that is to know beyond reasonable doubt, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that you accepted his sacrifice in our place and that we can be made right with you through faith in what he accomplished for us. And we just rejoice, Lord. We realize we're not worthy. We realize that we still make mistakes, but we're grateful for the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and the fact that you accepted his sacrifice on our behalf. And so, Lord, I, I uh, just close this morning uh, hoping that what Jesus accomplished is at the forefront of our mind, uh, at least as we leave here and, and, and as we go through the week. 
And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.